Good afternoon and welcome to another UK Column interview. My name is Debbie Evans and for those that don't know me, I'm a retired state registered nurse. I used to be a ward sister and I'm a retired government advisor for the Department of Health. And all of that may prove relevant in a minute when I introduce you to my guest for today. Now, as we record this interview today, uh, the junior doctors have just returned to the NHS after six days of strike. As we record this interview, millions are stuck on NHS waiting lists, many of them now having to seek care in the private medicine sector. As we record this, the UK is in the middle of an icy freeze. Hence, you see the jumpers. It's very chilly in the UK at the moment. And as we record this, there will be an increase in trips, slips, falls, and even road traffic accidents. Winter is traditionally a very busy time for doctors, but in particular, orthopaedic surgeons and consultant orthopaedic surgeons, of which we don't have enough. And today, I am delighted to be joined by one such expert, Dr. Ahmed Malik. Many of you will have seen Dr. Malik before, um, but I'm joined by him today, whose life has been, and his sterling career, has been cut short for telling the truth. So today, welcome, Ahmed, to UK Column, and thank you so much for joining us, and give us a little introduction of who you are. Hi, Debbie. Um, it's really nice to be back chatting to you. It's, it feels weird, though, being on the other side. And um, for some of you who don't know, Debbie was one of my guests on my podcast and we had a great chat. So, um, yeah, I'm an orthopedic consultant surgeon. Um, I have to say X now, although it's difficult to say that. It's hard for it to come out. I graduated in 1998 after five years of medical school training and had a 25 year career as a surgeon. I loved it. I've been a consultant for 12, 13 years now. But everything changed in December 2022 when I did a, a video saying we need to ask questions about this experimental jab. Um, I'm seeing a lot of harms. My colleagues are seeing harms. No one is willing to speak up and say anything about it. So here I am. We need to halt and investigate what is going on. Um, to my surprise, that video was seen by over a million people. And to my even greater surprise, rather than being contacted and asked by the senior management and medical directors of the private hospitals that I work out of, because I left the NHS in 2017, I was instead notified immediately within 24 hours by two national medical directors to halt cease and desist, never comment on COVID or the vaccines or anything like that ever again, stick to my scope of practice, which is orthopedics and foot and ankle surgery. And if I dare to talk about this topic again, I would have to worry about my practicing privileges, basically my entitlement to work out of their hospitals. That would basically mean my career is over. And I was shocked because surely if you've got a doctor, a consultant saying there's something strange going on, patient safety is potentially at stake, we need to investigate. Surely that's what people would say, let's do it or let's at least look into it. And surely it's better to be wrong when it comes to patient safety about something, um, but investigate than be right and be silenced. The hospitals didn't see it that way. Um, what ensued was, you know, essentially what felt like a campaign of bullying and harassment calls for me to respond to their emails, um, invitations um, to attend meetings and investigations, um, to respond to anonymous complaints from the public. And we started playing this game of ping pong where I would bat back their, you know, requests with my own requests, you know, saying, what is it I've said that's wrong? You know, what do you agree with, with these anonymous complaints? Haven't I got a duty under the GMC good medical practice to raise these issues? Um, but they would never respond to any of my requests. I would just be, you know, I would just have more questions being asked of me. Um, eventually, I started building up a large Twitter following 
And I, I realized that actually I wasn't alone in the way I thought and that there were many people who thought like me and that the biggest dereliction of medical ethics ever isn't something to be sniffed at. And frankly, it was appalling that the medical establishment never stood up to the government or the so-called experts when it came to how medical ethics were destroyed during the COVID years. Um, so I felt a duty that I, I needed to speak up and I was getting a following. And I thought, you know, people are hungry to hear from a doctor that this isn't right. And, you know, I popped my head up once before when it was at the time of the mandates and I went on GB News and, you know, I got ridiculed by my colleagues at the time. But I thought mandates were just appalling. And now I'm seeing vaccine, so-called vaccine injuries. And we're gaslighting the patients or doctors are too scared to say anything. So I thought I just need to step up and, and say something. I can't stay quiet anymore. Um, I then was referred to the GMC because apparently I'm transphobic, which I'm not so ridiculous. I'm not scared of people who identify as trans. I actually am really concerned about the exploitation of a very large, vulnerable group of young people who are confused about their bodies um, by the me medical establishment who are giving them drugs, who are operating on them for what might be a temporary problem resulting lifelong complications and you know, permanent change. So again, I think this is an issue of medical ethics. We need to protect this group of people. Anyway, the private hospitals didn't see it like that. They thought it was a perfect way to get me. So they referred me to the GMC. The GMC threw it out. But then the private hospitals, I think, were thinking, how do we get rid of this troublemaker? Because now I'm getting increasingly vocal on social media. I'm talking about the fact that there was no pandemic. There was no novel virus. The thing that we saw had no greater lethality than the flu season. Nothing we saw justified the lockdowns, the social distancing, the masking, the sh shutting down of the economy, the schools, the delaying of our children's development. Nothing justified rolling out an experimental platform, which is toxic and harmful. Nothing. So I'm vocal about this because this is important, because trust in doctors has been demolished. Medical ethics has been demolished. But instead of being congratulated and, you know, patted on the back, um, yeah, the hospitals went for me. So over minor technicalities, one hospital suspended me and stopped me working there. Um, that absolutely financially crippled me. I worked there for 10 years um, and that was it. So then I was hanging on for dear life when another hospital cancelled me because they didn't like a post of a um, podcast interview I had done, which I had put on my Instagram account. They used that justification that that post was taken out of context. It could offend someone. Um, we're going to investigate you. So I was suspended again. Now, by this point, I hadn't been earning any money for three, four months. I'm losing money, trying to keep my practice alive. Um, and I realized these hospitals don't want me and they will make my life absolutely agony if I carry on. Um, so I basically stopped practicing at the beginning of this year. My 25-year career has come to an end because as a surgeon, if I don't have a private hospital to operate out of, I'm pretty useless. I mean, yeah, I could get some room in Harley Street, but then what? I can't operate on anyone. But we're talking very much about your professional career. You're a consultant, orthopedic surgeon. Surgeons can't operate, <laughs> literally, without operating theatres and uh, big, expensive equipment. Um, unless you've yep. got access to that equipment, you can't work. But there's another side of you as well, because... You never refer to your wife as your wife. You always refer to your wife as your beautiful wife, which I always have thought is lovely. But you have a beautiful wife and you have beautiful young children and you have a mortgage and you have bills like everybody else. Tell us how this has impacted on your beautiful young family. Yeah. So, I mean, at the time when this all first kicked off and I had those letters um, about 13 months ago, um, I spoke to my children. They're eight, six, and four now. They're very young. And I've been teaching them about bullying for the last two years because as a doctor, I always ask my patients about their stress, their sleep, their diet. 
And I found it shocking how many people were stressed because their children were being bullied. So I talked to my kids frankly about bullying, and I know a lot about bullying. And I told my kids, I'm being bullied. and This is what the bullies are telling me. What should I do? And they said, you need to stand up to them, Dad, just like you tell us to stand up to the bullies, because if you don't, they'll just keep bullying you. So they know what's going on. I have a young family. Um, and yeah, this, is, this has had a massive impact on, on me and the family. I mean, two months ago, I attended a wedding and I met a couple of doctors there. They came rushing up to me and saying, oh my God, are you Doc Malik? Doc Malik podcast. And I was like, yes. Oh my God, we're great fans of yours. We love your work. We agree with everything you say. I mean, that's really nice of you. And then I said, what are you guys doing? And there was silence. And they just looked at their feet. They kind of like stepped from left to right and didn't really know what to do. And then one, after a very long, awkward pause, turned around and pointed to the, the, uh, the dining table behind and said, uh, I've got young family. I, I, I can't, I'm not in a position to lose it all. And then I went, well, touche, buddy. Look behind me. Those are my three kids. I've got a mortgage. I haven't won the more, um, lottery. I only worked two days a week. I, I drive an eight-year-old car. I, you know, I'm not an extravagant man and I've got bills to pay. And you don't think I've got too much to lose? I said, we need to do this though, because if we don't do anything, you know, our children will not have a decent future. They'll have a terrifying future. Don't you think? Again, awkward silence. And then I left the two of them and I walked away and back to my wife. And it is very stressful because I've got no money. I've got absolutely no money. Um, after paying off my secretary and the bills and the accountant and the tax bill, I've got no money. And um, my wife has now gone full time. She used to be part time. So the kids don't see her as much. They just see her on the weekend. She leaves at six in the morning, comes home at half seven, eight o'clock at night. She commutes into London. Um, so she's working full time and I'm desperately trying to make my podcast make some money. I've asked for subscribers on my Substack, um, and it's, it's scary. I'll be honest with you. It's really, really scary. I mean, we might have to sell our house and I don't know what we're going to do. Um, but what was the alternative? What was the alternative? If, if the alternative was to just go back and do my job and be comfortable, but live a lie and not defend the medical ethics and not stick up for what's right and speak the truth. No, no, I couldn't do that. That would kill me. That would eat me up inside. I can't do that. I'd rather walk this uncertain future, but know that I'm in the right. And, you know, a lot of people walked this path before me and had a, a lot worse off. At least I've got my wife. At least I've got my kids. At least I've got my health. At least I've got my podcasts, I've got my supporters, and hopefully I will make a better future for myself and my family and for society and for this country. I know it sounds grandiose, but I need to believe it. I need to believe that I haven't done this all for nothing. Now, I know, Ahmed, that when we've previously talked, um, you've told me that your wife actually is a, is a doctor too, um, a junior doctor, junior to, to your grade of consultant. How has she been affected working in the NHS when the lockdowns and the whole COVID uh, things started um, and mandates started? How did that affect you? Because you're obviously very passionate, you're very outspoken. How did this affect um, your wife? So basically, in the beginning, not so much. For her, she believed everything the government told her. She said, how can Chris Whitty and Sir Ian Valance lie to us? These are people in trusted authority, the establishment, the royal colleges, the GMC, the politicians, the media. You think all of these people are lying? Or maybe it's that you're mistaken. Maybe the fact that you're at home with the kids, you're not earning, you're not working, you're depressed. You know what? You've just gone down a bit of a rabbit hole. You know what? You need to believe and trust in the authorities. That unfortunately caused me a lot of stress because I knew what was coming. I knew the vaccines were coming. And when I said to her, will you take these vaccines, these experimental vaccines? 
She said yes. So straight away, it started causing a lot of tension in our marriage, more for me than her, because she was oblivious to anything. She was working in the front line, in the hospitals, wearing the masks, having to segregate. And she was being told that there's a pathogen that's going to kill her and it's going to kill everyone. And she believed it all. And she was part of Facebook groups of 20, 30,000 doctors, all regurgitating the same nonsense. And so she thinks, she thought at the time that all these people were, were right and I was wrong. Now, can you imagine how painful that must be for me? Because I love her to bits. And I'm thinking if she doesn't believe me, she doesn't respect me, she thinks I'm crazy. How can there be love in that kind of relationship? And if she's going to take these dangerous shots, what's going to happen? So it was painful. And it was a very, very tough time. And when the shots came out and I, and I read the EUA and I read what was going on, I said, these are not vaccines even. These aren't even safe. This is dangerous. And then friends and colleagues started calling me an anti-vaxxer and a crazy person. And to prove them all that I wasn't, I said, to hell with it. I'll, look, I'll take the goddamn shot. I'm not a crazy person. I'm telling you, though, this isn't right. And I went to the vaccine center and, and I was there. I remember just saying to the guy, you know, what is in this? You know, can, can, I, can you tell me what's in the packet? And, and he's talking to me at the time. And I'm just saying to him, look, can you just tell me what's in the packet? All I'm hearing is mumbling. Next thing I know, I've got the jab in my arm. I was like, what would you do? Like, I was at least expecting you to tell me, like a patient information leaflet, the pill, the what? He went, it's the vaccine, it's the mRNA shot. And I was stunned. Like, is that the consent process? Like, there was no consent process. I had no consent. And I walked out really, like, dizzy. I just didn't understand what had happened. You know, I went there, yes to consider taking the shot. I still at the last minute, I was asking what is in this? Because I was torn and I was coerced and pressured to go there. And you know what? I admit I was totally weak and pathetic. Um, but I'd been isolated for, you know, months and months. All my colleagues, my wife, everybody pushing me to take this goddamn stupid thing. But anyway, I, I cried like a baby in the car. I felt so violated. This stupid thing was inside me. And I know about being violated. I've been molested as a kid on two occasions and it wasn't nice. And I fought back against the people and pushed them off me. But this was worse because this was inside me and I couldn't get it out of me. And I promised myself never ever to ever have a shot like this ever again and to make sure my kids don't get it and I'll tell everyone that I can not to take this goddamn thing. My wife, however, went ahead and had them because, again, she trusted authority blindly. And it was a very difficult year that year. But by the end of that year, because I had given up trying to persuade her and show the evidence, I realized that wasn't working. Instead, I just spent time connecting with her, exercising, running just enjoying life, laughing again. And then we listened to a few podcasts with Joe Rogan and Robert Malone and Peter McCullough. And she found them fascinating. And one day she just turned around and went, I'm awake now. I'm never going to get any of these jabs ever again. Our kids are never going to get these things. I can't believe this. I'm sorry I believe the government, but you know, I was brainwashed. You know, my innocence and my trust and authority was abused and it's gone now forever. So our marriage is now stronger than ever and we take steps to be healthy as much as possible and we're not worried about dying from these shots because stress and worry doesn't get you anywhere and it's actually counterproductive. You need to live in hope and light and happiness and love um, and we're fit and healthy and we don't have any problems. But I also realized at that point how powerful the medium of a podcast was. And I, when I built up my following, very quickly I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a podcast. It was always something that I thought I would want to do and I procrastinated. I was going to do a health podcast, a foot and ankle podcast. Never ever got around to do it. But now I felt compelled. I'm going to do it. And it was my way of fighting back against the system. Because when I went viral and I got a 
following of about 30, 40,000 on Twitter, I started getting invited to these freedom WhatsApp groups and so-called minor celebrities and famous people and whatever. But I got very frustrated because all these groups with hundreds of people in them, some of them really quite well known, they weren't actually doing anything. No one was doing anything. So I had enough of that. I thought, what can we do? We can inform the public, educate them, empower them with knowledge so that they can make the right choices. That's what my podcast is going to be about. So it started off as a hobby. I had money in the bank, savings for a rainy day. I splashed out. I built a little garden studio, did it properly because I'm a perfectionist. Got cameras, TV, boom, this, that. I researched everything, lighting, recording, editing, thumbnails, scheduling, you name it. I did everything myself because I didn't have the money to be paying anyone. I don't have any sponsors. But it was a hobby and it was a hobby I goddamn loved. And it suddenly took off and it got very popular. And I was amazed at myself at how popular it was. And people just we were like, yeah, well, come on, just like you. And you know, I reached out to you and you're like, yeah, let's do it. Hardly any ever get anyone saying, no, I don't want to come on. Um, but suddenly this little hobby of mine is now potentially my career. And to think that on January the 1st, 2023, I would be think, thinking, if I, if I had been told, oh, by January 2024, the 1st of January 2024, you won't be an orthopedic consultant anymore. You'll be a professional podcaster. I think I would have wet myself laughing. <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, whatever, get on the bus. But here we are, and what a crazy world and journey we're on. And I'm now, I've gone through the grieving process, you know, I've gone through the crying, I've, I've cried on my wife's shoulder quite a few times. I've, I've been in shock, I've been angry, I've been in disbelief. I'm over that now. You know, now I'm like, whatever happens, happens for a reason. I've been down in the past quite a few times. I've always picked myself up. I've always looked back and thought, Do you know what? It's the best thing that ever happened to me. So you know what? If the medical profession doesn't want me, great. Good for them. I'm going to move on and I'm still going to be able to help people, which is why I went into medicine. You asked me, you know, off air, why do you want to go into medicine and why did you want to do that? I was fascinated by the body. I was fascinated by health and I was fascinated by, you know, the ability to help people and physically do some stuff. Well, maybe that chapter of my life is over and it's quite exciting being at the bottom of the rung of the ladder, struggling, learning, being challenged. And I'm going to enjoy this process. And yes, it's scary. But like my six-year-old daughter says to me, you can't be brave if you're not scared. And the only thing that I'm scared about is the financial insecurity because it's like, how are we going to pay for everything? But that's okay. That's okay because... Things always work out. You know, I need to believe in that because otherwise, what's the alternative? Doom and gloom, you live in depression, you wallow in self-pity, nothing gets done. You know, I'm, I think part of the punishment for me is the process. They want me to be bogged down and disillusioned and broken. And you know what? I'm not going to give them that satisfaction. If they think they can break me and silence me, they, they really don't know who they've gone up against because it's going to be the exact opposite, Debbie. I'm so glad that you are in the saddle and that you are doing what you're doing. And all that you've said there, there's a lot to unpack, but I want to come back to something that you said that's incredibly important. And I'm sure people watching, when they heard your experience at the vaccine centre and the fact that you were jabbed before you even realized what was going on, least of all had any of your questions answered. I think a lot of people will find that shocking. And I think there are, are also a lot of people that will identify with that, which brings me back to one big topic. And as a doctor and as a recipient of this injection without informed consent, um, as an orthopedic consultant, you have to give patients consent all the time. You have to inform patients of the risks of 
what you're going to do or the options of what you're going to do and maybe the outcome or perhaps, I don't know, maybe the, uh, the option might be to do nothing. But your job is to empower them, as you've said, to empower them and educate them with which to give informed consent. And um, I want to talk to you about informed consent. But what I also want to say just before um, I let you reply on that is that I wrote to the Royal College of General Practitioners back in 2022 to ask specifically what the ingredients were of the vaccine because obviously the doctor must know what the ingredients are going to be before they give it to you, right? Otherwise, they can't give you mm. informed consent. It, it stands to reason. And I received a letter back from the RCGP, from Dr. Michael Marholland, and we'll see a, a copy of that on screen. Um, and you'll see the bit that's underlined in red, which clearly says that doctors aren't aware of the ingredients in the vaccine. And actually, neither are pharmacists, because there are secret ingredients, there are ingredients that are not declared. So mm. actually, informed consent never existed. So I'm really interested in your thoughts, um, both by being a recipient of this injection and as having to uh, follow your medical duties and mm. ethics on informed consent. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, when you said, um, I'm shocked that you're jabbed and you didn't like, bang, not really. Subsequently, um, I was speaking to a doctor, husband, wife couple, and they were boasting about how many people they were jabbing in a day and they were having competitions, how many hundreds they could jab. And the husband had pipped his wife by, a f by 10 or so. And he was saying how he just walked in, jabbed, left, walked in. There was, no there was no talking. There was no informed consent. There was no explanation. It was literally you walk in, jab, pick up a needle from the next one, jab. That was it. And I was shocked. And what was shocking was, one, that they didn't think that was unusual or wrong. Or two, that they didn't think they, they, they had the, the right and duty to give in, informed consent. It was just implied. You're here, bang. There we go. And I don't know anywhere where that's ever happened before. So when you, when you talk about that letter that you, 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 know, you wrote to the GP college and you got the response, I find that shocking. You know, let me, I want to go through medical ethics, but let's talk about this. You know, I don't know what's in this vaccine. Imagine I went into a room, there's a party, okay? And there's a 20, 30 people and I walked in and I had a syringe with some liquid in it and a needle. And I said, hi, everyone. I want to inject this into your arm. Have I, can I have any volunteers, please? How many people do you think would put their hands up? None. Am I right? So Absolutely. Ne Zero. Next, if I said, next, if I said, and they said, what's in this? And I said, I don't know. How many people would put their hands up? Zero. If I said this is an experiment, never been proven or tested properly in the past, who wants it? Hey, this was used as a platform for cancer drugs and it's never been proven to be effective. We're now changed it to use it as a vaccine. Are you interested? Who would have put their hand up? If I said, hey, you know, this is actually a kind of genetic manipulation. It's not even a vaccine. It's not even gene therapy because we don't know if it's therapy. It's a genetic intervention. Who put the hand up? None. If I then said, by the way, the study that has been used to prove this unknown substance is great, is significantly flawed, it's not scientific, it's biased, it's corrupt, and it's fraudulent. Who would have put their hand up and said, yeah, give me the shot? If I then said, by the way, this fraudulent study for this substance, actually, this, this isn't even that thing because now on mass production, it's a completely different manufacturing process and it's a completely different product and now completely untested. It doesn't even have a fraudulent study to back it up. Would you want this shot? I'd say they say no. If I then said it's got DNA plasma and an E. coli plasma and God knows what else in it, do you want this? 
I don't think anyone would still put their hand up. If I then said, you know what, you're not going to be able to travel or you're going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to have any kind of life unless you have this jab. I still don't think they would take it. But if I then locked them up in their homes, gagged them and masked them and fed them propaganda and brainwashing lies for months and months, I think then once they were broken mentally, they would start saying, yeah, I'll take this. Now, you don't need to be a doctor. You don't need to be a scientist or an expert or any one of those things to know this is bloody wrong. So what is medical ethics? Well, informed consent ultimately is one of the pillars of it. But medical ethics in a nutshell is really simple. It's a set of rules and principles that protect the public from people like me. To protect the public from doctors and surgeons doing things to them, taking advantage of them, experimenting on them, and profiting from them. That's it, in a nutshell. It's all about safeguarding and protecting you, the public. It's pretty damn important. And it's taken centuries to get to where we are now to codify and describe them in detail. But it's been in the making for literally centuries and centuries. So one of the first principles we all know, first, do no harm. Don't do anything to anyone that might make them worse off. Not, not don't do anything that makes them worse off. No, no, no. Don't do anything that might make them worse off. The body has an amazing capacity to heal, recover, and get better on its own, given the right circumstances. It's an incredible creation because it is, in my belief, my belief is it's a creation and we are a wondrous creation. And left alone, we can heal ourselves with the right circumstances. So first of all, do no harm. And sometimes it's best to just observe and watch and not interfere, especially not with a toxic experimental substance of unknown side effects and long-term problems. And actually, that's actually incorrect, that statement, because by the time the EUA came out and they started using it, they already had 32 pages and over 3,000 adverse effects. Just think about that. Again, come back to that informed consent. How many people would take that vial if I said, by the way, there's over 3,000 things that could go wrong if you take this shot? I don't think there'd be many takers. So that's that. First, do no harm. Second, personal bodily autonomy. What happens to me and my body is none of anyone else's business. Not the state, not my neighbor, no one. No one can tell me what I do or don't do to my body. Forget greater good. That's, that's Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler talking. We don't do greater good in the West. That's nonsense. That's totalitarianism. We do things for ourselves, for the individual. So I need to decide what's in my best interest and what is done to my body. So when things like mandates come along and say, no, you don't get to choose, we have decided, we being the state, the expert, big pharma, the media, the government, that's wrong. That is so wrong and so disgusting, a violation of our rights. I can't begin to go there. I can't believe that the country that I was born in even introduced them, brought them into the care home workers, talked about bringing it into the NHS. What happened to my country? Unforgivable. I want to ask you about that, actually, because a lot of us didn't see what was going on at the time in hospitals and in the NHS, and you got a bird's eye view. Those yeah. mandates, when they came in, they didn't just come in, did they, for frontline workers? They came in for uh, if you were a builder, if you were a, a technician. They came in literally for everyone. It, it got to the point 100%. where you couldn't cross the threshold of a, of a hospital. 100%. Tell us a bit about that. 100%. So they, everything's a lie. They always start off like slowly, slowly, let's burn the, boil the frog. 
you know, and two minutes to flatten the curve. It's, they always lie and they do it slowly. They just keep creeping up, you know, until one minute they're in your face. Um, so they said it's going to be for frontline workers only. First it was care home workers and frontline workers and it was a lie. What they wanted was every medical healthcare institution, private or public, NHS or not, clinic, GP surgery, um, diagnostic center, a management building, a lab, you name it. It was, Everyone in that building and premises were going to be mandated. If you were a contractor doing gardening work in the hospital, you had to do it. If you're a parking attendant, a contractor, if you're a, a, a waste management person, anyone, like you said, crossing the, crossing the threshold would have to get the jab. It was affecting millions of people. And if people are out there not working in the healthcare or not working directly for the NHS, but contractors, trust me, you would have been affected. And it was shocking. And, and the number of people who would come up to me in hushed tones and go, Dr. Malik, with tears in their eyes, I don't know what to do. I don't want the shots. I don't want the shots. What am I going to do? So informed consent is the next medical pillar. And this is really important because like you said, you know, they didn't even know what was in these shots. Imagine you came to see me to have an operation and I said, I don't know what actually I'm going to be doing the surgery. I don't know what I'll be putting in on you. I'll you know what? Once you're asleep, you'll open the box and see what's there. Then we'll put it inside you. Would you want that operation? I don't think so. You would want to know, Mr. Malik, but exactly what are you going to put inside me? Oh, no, no, don't worry, Debbie. It'll be a surprise. No. Fool for anyone who takes that surprise. You know, anyone who now at this point in time is blindly trusting of authority or their doctors. I'm sorry if this is painful to hear. You're a schmuck. You're a schmuck, right? Because they're willing to put poison inside you. And these people have not got your best interest at heart. And we'll come to that in a second. So informed consent is giving you all the information about your condition, your disease, in which case this was not lethal. Um, and, the, and the pros and cons of every intervention, intervention A or B or C, and you need to be given choice. You can't be told, by the way, here's your shot. There's nothing else. And you have to take it. That's not informed consent. One of the major choices is to do nothing. And when you then give all that information with the pros and cons, and you need to give them time, you need to tell them that they can ask questions. You need to give them time to come back and ask questions. You need to give them the opportunity to talk with family and friends. And you need to do it with no coercion, no duress, and no incentive. And finally, you need to respect their decision no matter what it is. Where, the, where, where did that exist in the last three, four years? Where? Tell me. To this day, it doesn't exist. People still don't know what are in these shots. People still don't know about the adverse effects that are happening. People are being lied to on a daily basis. Come along, get your bivalent flu and COVID shot. People go for a flu shot and they don't even know they've got a bivalent COVID shot. They're not even being told this. Do they know this? That that covalent bivalent study was only tested on a handful of mice and nothing else? No one is being told anything. There is no informed consent. Like I said, the bait and switch thing happened where the manufacturing process even changed for the, drug, the vaccine, these gene therapies, missed therapies, um, initially for the study and for the mass production, completely different process. You know, No one on this planet who has had the shot has had informed consent. Now, going back to what I said about, you know, you can't trust your medical profession. Look, when a doctor like me, and I've always said I'm an ethical surgeon and a really crappy businessman. Um, when, I, when I speak up and say the truth and warn people about what's going on and tell them about medical ethics so that they know their rights and they can stand up and say no, what happens to me? I get burnt. I get crucified. I get destroyed. I get financially crippled. And that's one of the main reasons why doctors are not saying anything. Not all the doctors are indoctrinated. Maybe 80% of them believe the government narrative, but I, I bet 20% know everything stinks, maybe even higher. David Cartland told me that at GP practice, all the nurses and doctors refused to take any more boosters or shots, but the next day they were, they were happy to inject everyone. 
So they know themselves that it's wrong and dangerous, but they're quite willing to give it to everyone else. I'll tell you why. Because the, the way the NHS now operates and the private system, and a lot of the doctors, if not 99% of them, work in the NHS and the private system. They've always got one hat, uh, foot in each camp. So they're practically the same. And they're all just giving a sp- spewing out the same mantra. When, when they practice medicine now, it's all protocol and guideline driven. And the guidelines are, are such an Orwellian term. It's not a guideline. It's a dictat. It's an order. It's an instruction. And if you follow the guidelines and the protocols and something happens to the patient, you will not be fined or punished or reprimanded for that because you were just following, and this is chilling, you were just following orders. It's a shame that person might have died or had myocarditis or neurological complication. I was just following orders. Now, if you do what Jerry Waters did, who's a GP in Ireland, I just had him on my podcast, and be a conscientious objector and say, no, no, I don't believe in these vaccines. I'm not going to inject. You get suspended. He's been suspended for two years now, three years, I can't remember. He's been financially ruined. So doctors know, just like those two GPs that I spoke to, just like the 150 doctors in a private WhatsApp group, they all know this is all wrong. But they don't say anything because they know if they do, they'll lose their job or their livelihood. So when you go to a doctor next time, when you or your loved one go to the doctor or the clinic or the a department or the hospital, and you sit in front of a doctor and they give you advice and say, well, I think you should have this or blah, blah, blah. How honestly do you know what they're recommending is in your best interest and not in fact what's in their best interest? And I would say to you, We don't know that anymore. On that, I agree. I completely agree. And uh, for many people that are watching, the NHS is becoming um, what they deem to be a dangerous place to be. Um, For people like you and I, who have got medical training, who know the language, who perhaps know more what to ask and how to ask it, um, we've got the benefit of that knowledge. But for many people watching, when they're speaking to a doctor, they know they're on limited time. That's if they get a face-to-face appointment or perhaps they're on the phone to the doctor. Maybe it's a doctor that they've never met before. Maybe it's not even a doctor. Maybe it's yeah. a, a trainee. Maybe it's a nurse. You don't know who you're seeing now in hospitals. Um, I always tell people to question everything, but what would your advice be to people that are watching that... Yeah are nervous about going to the NHS. And, you know, we are saying, you're saying that you can't trust the experts. Um, Is the NHS a safe place to be? Can you trust the people in the NHS? How do you find out? How are you able to discern what is good advice and what, or, or, or should maybe we all be saying, look, whenever we go to see somebody, can we rain check on this and go away and do our own research? Is that how we should be approaching it? That's an excellent question and very relevant because um, it's very, it's close to home. And I'll say to everybody, look what's on my cap, question everything. Don't take anything for granted. Trust your gut instinct. Don't be intimidated and fearful because they're a doctor means nothing. So, just when I couldn't think, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, my mother had a heart attack just before Christmas. And yeah, I blame the shots that she'd, she'd taken. She'd never had a cardiac history. And she's got no family history of cardiac disease. And suddenly she's got a thrombosis in one of her arteries. Okay. And what then ensued was a very painful process because getting information from anyone was very difficult. Very difficult. Um, There was a complication. They did an angioplasty and they split the artery, which is why they didn't stent it. But they didn't say that to us. They simply said, we've done the angioplasty. And then later, when we're saying, why is my mum coughing blood? They're like, oh, well, there's a problem and um, the artery was split. Is that why you didn't stent it? They never got back to us. When I was sitting in the waiting area um, in in the clinic, you know, in the cubicle with my mum, 
in, in, on the ward, you know, I was struck because a doctor came in, pulled back the curtain, came in, started looking at the observations, didn't say hello to my mom, didn't say hello to me, didn't acknowledge us, and then just asked my mom a question. And it's basic courtesy. Hello, everybody. Who are you? How are you? I'm just going to come and check this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is stuff that, I, you know, that's basic bedside manner. There was an air of arrogance, aloofness, and I was just bemused. And then my mum said, well, actually, no, I don't have a question. My, my, my son does. And she went, oh, okay, and turned around to me and looked literally down at me. And I said, what's your grade? And she was a very junior doctor. And I said, just to let you know, I'm a consultant. Her demeanor completely changed. I asked a few questions. She stuttered. She left. She brought back her registrar. And then the registrar was very defensive and, and you know, not forthcoming. And it was very difficult trying to get information out of them. Now, the long story short, my mom went into heart failure after the heart attack. It was picked up a little bit on a scan two days post heart attack. Now, according to another cardiologist that I know, an excellent one, my mom should have had another scan at five or six days post heart attack to see if there was any further deterioration. She should have had some blood tests to look for the heart failure because that was very high. They should have kept her in until her troponin levels dropped down, but they discharged her at four days. And it's very difficult to get her back in and ask anyone to answer questions. No one answers. No one picks up the phone. No one. Secretary's line just, you can't even leave a message on the phone. And then when she got really sick again and breathless and coughing up blood, we had to take her back to A&E and she spent the whole day there, the whole night. She's exhausted. She's tired. People jabbing her. Doctors coming left, right and center. Junior doctors, A&E doctors. No cardiologist wants to see her. No senior wants to see her. I have to get on the phone. I have to speak to the doctors to, to get them to take you know me seriously. My, card, my cardiologist tells me that the medication that she's on is suboptimal and should be changed. We ask for it to be changed. They say no. The drug that they've put her on is a more expensive drug that she could be on and has a higher side effect profile, which she is suffering from. But you know what? Big Pharma has said that the guidelines that this is a first line drug now, even though it's got a higher side effect profile. My mum's got a side effect. But guess what? It makes more money for big pharma. And the doctors blindly just say, no, this is our guidelines. We have to give this drug. I mean, eventually I got the drug changed. I have to contact the consultant. My mum's side effects have gone now. She's still in heart failure, but I'm looking after her. We've asked for another ultrasound echo. They've canceled it. They say it's not necessary. It won't change management. I've said, don't you think it matters what stage of heart failure she's in, how we should monitor it? Basic common sense. The answer is no. Now, if this is what the system is like for me and my mother, and I'm medically educated and a consultant, God help the average person. God help them is all I can say. But what I would say is question everything. Never just take for granted what a doctor tells you. Take the name and grade of the doctor, document everything they say, create a paper trail, ask for clarification, ask for a meeting with the seniors and the consultant, and ask, ask questions. And if you're not satisfied, demand a second opinion. That's what I would say. Can I just ask you, how is your mum now? Well, we've both managed not to drive each other crazy over the last week. So I think that's a miracle. Uh, she's okay. She's, she's indoors um, next to the fire, knitting and stroking the cat. So she's, she's okay right now. Well, centre our love. Um, because sadly, you know, this, your story, your mum's story is not an isolated case. This is happening to many, many people and many people that are watching us now will be nodding their heads. They'll know people oh, yes. that it's happened to. Indeed, I do. This a, a similar thing happened to my own mother who had no cardiac history at all and then suddenly disappeared 300 miles down the road to London. Um, so, but that's another story. And, and I think, mm. you know, what, what else you brought up there, Ahmed, was something very, very important 
in the incentives that doctors are given by pharmaceutical companies and the industry, how big the industry is. I mean, the statin industry, for example, is worth what? Billions, trillions? I, I don't know. It's, it's worth a huge amount of money. Yeah. I mean, trillions. tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about that. How yeah, much money I, I, is in this? It is. And I think one of the reasons why I've been destroyed is I've picked fights <laughs> with not just, it's not a battle of, you know, David and Goliath. Imagine Goliath being the size of a mountain. That's Those are the battles I've taken on. I've taken on the vaccine industry, a trillion dollar industry, statins and PPIs, antidepressants, another trillion dollar industry. I've taken on the climate scam, another trillion dollar industry. I've taken on you know the transgender ideology and industry because it is an industry. So unfortunately, I've picked a lot of enemies. I mean, going back to the, the drugs and the web, I did a wonderful podcast with someone called Kim Witchak. We talk about the spider web of influence of big pharma and the medical establishment. I seriously urge everyone to watch that. And it will show you the corruption of medical schools, medical colleges, regulatory bodies, um, the medical colleges, nursing colleges, the medical journals, the scientific community, the whole shabam it is rotten to the core. Um, and yeah, I mean, the statins, I've got Malcolm McKendrick coming on, Dr. Malcolm McKendrick. He's written a great book about um, blood clots and, you know, heart attack, the disease. I think, what's it about the books? I can't believe, I can't believe I can't remember it, but what the clot or something like that. Um, and he's written a book about statins as well. It's, it's all nonsense. But, you know, my mum was discharged and told you need to go on high dose statins. And if you don't, you're going to die of a heart attack. And for, you know, weeks now, my mum and I have been having this argy-bargy because she goes, all these doctors are telling me to take statins. You're telling me to stop. I'm like, yeah, there's no evidence to say it works at all and actually has significant side effects because cholesterol is not the bad person. Cholesterol is like the fire engine that's at the scene of a fire. It's like blaming the fire engine for the fire. It's there to help. Cholesterol is a vital structure needed for life. All your cell membranes are made out of it. Your brain, the cognitive function, muscle function, everything. You need cholesterol. The reason why you have side effects of statins is because you're blocking normal cellular processes. And that's what people don't realize, that the corruption of big pharma is so deep. And the doctors that you meet, they lack critical thinking. The way we've put doctors on a pedestal they, that pedestal needs to be taken away, I'm afraid. They don't deserve that anymore. I'm sure we're going to have to have a part two and possibly a part three because there's so much to talk about. Um, and by the way, all of the links to Ahmed's website, his uh, Substack, his podcasts and his Twitter, or oh, sorry, X account are going to be in the article beneath this interview. But, you know, what I want to say is that we talk about medical ethics, we talk about the Hippocratic Oath, we talk about the reasons that we became medical professionals, you became a doctor, and I became a nurse. And I remember in our podcast when we were talking, uh, your wife was very much, well, you know, nurses should have a university training, they should. Um, and we had this big discussion about training, mm. and we had a discussion mm. about standards and we had a discussion about the importance of uniforms and the pride in your appearance and the pride in your hospital and your training. Um, and I just want to remind people that in my day, uh, we went to, we didn't go to university. We went to nursing school. And just because you call it school doesn't mean to say that it's a primary school for, for kindergarten. It was the university of nursing in our day, but it wasn't, it wasn't centered in a university building. We were centered in a clinical environment within the hospital. And as well as medical ethics and as well as standards, we learned something very important, which was tender, loving care. And that is what I'm seeing has disappeared Apart from, I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to sit here and say it's disappeared entirely because there are still in the NHS, and we must remember 
the good people that are still left in the NHS. And many of them are struggling, but they're determined to stay there in order to give their patients the care that they feel their, their patients deserve, which is good care. So, you know, we, we, we know that we've got good people still in the NHS, but similarly, we seem to have seen a decline in tender loving care, sitting on a patient's bed, which I was always told off for, um, having a cup of tea, sharing a bit of conversation. Um, all of that, Ahmed, seems to have gone. What's happened? What changed? Yeah. I mean, look, you said there's a lot of good people there, but you know, what's that quote? All that you need for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. I just want everyone to remember that. Okay. And make no mistake, evil is flourishing at this moment in time. So unless more good people do something, um, we're, we're in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble ahead. Um, so next, look, I, I don't, I don't really care about names and titles and badges and universities and whatnot. I think universities right now, uh, I frankly don't respect them at all. They're just institutions of um, financial learning. It's about money and indoctrination. These are not temples of learning anymore. They're just temples of indoctrination. And I think you learn more going through nursing school, school than, you know, anybody going for nursing school today because the doctors and nurses of today are indoctrinated, lack critical thinking. And I'll give you an example. So when my mom said, you know, the, the cardiac rehab nurse told me I really need to take my statins and, you know, your son is wrong. You know, you need a low fat diet and no, no fats and no meat. No, don't eat meat and just, just chicken and carbohydrates and low fat, everything. And don't, don't have butter or anything like that. And, she, and, and I said, okay, okay, what did that nurse look like? Did she look healthy? And my mom went quiet. I went, what's wrong? She went, her legs were this thick, each leg. She was so big, it was unbelievable. I went, hold on one sec. So your son, who's almost 49, runs 15, 16 kilometers, does jiu-jitsu, is fit and trim, has a waistline of 28. His bloods are all normal. He's never been healthier. The advice he's giving is wrong, but the advice that a morbidly obese nurse is giving you is correct. Can't you see there's something wrong here? And then she went quiet. Do you see how deep the, the brainwashing and programming runs? And, and, you know, the standards in the hospitals have dropped. And the reality is, We've let it happen. And what I mean by that is the doctors and nurses have given away their power and autonomy to the management class and to the managers and to the politicians, and they haven't stood their ground. Now they're striking because they want some money. Why were they not striking when it came to the mandates? Why were they not striking when they said, no, we can't do consultations in 10, 15 minutes. We demand 20 minutes to half an hour. Why didn't they strike when all these other Hospital policies were brought in that slowly eroded away the practice of medicine and nursing. Only now when it hits their bottom line, their pocket, they feel uh, the need to strike. I'm sorry. I don't have much sympathy for them. They dug the hole. They watched the people create the trenches and they pitched in and dug it deeper. Now they're in there. They're upset. Well, I'm sorry. You brought it on yourself. And when AI comes and takes away most of your jobs, remember I said this. It's never too late. Don't just strike because you've not got enough money. Strike because they've destroyed what the NHS was. Strike because they don't practice medicine the way it's meant to be anymore. There is no patient individualized centered care. Strike because of all the things that are wrong in the NHS. And my interview with you and Dr. Bob Gale highlighted all of that. And then once you've done all those strikes and turned things around and you strike to get a better pay, do you know what? I'll be the first one to support you and stand shoulder to shoulder. But when you're willing to jab people and gaslight people who are vaccine injured and work as pharma's legitimate drug dealers, then I'm afraid, 
I don't have much sympathy for you. And if that's harsh, well, so be it. It's called tough love. I know from listening to you um, in other interviews that you've come across doctors that are working now that have literally turned to drink because life has become so bad. Um, just briefly tell us about that, Ahmed, before I throw to you for your last words. Um, yeah, I mean, last month, it, it was really desperately sad. I'm sitting in my clinic room waiting for my one patient and um, a colleague passed by and said, oh, what are you doing here? I was like, well, I've got a patient and you know, I'm not normally here, but I'm not working anywhere else and I need to see this post-op. And I, and I, I said, how about you? How are you doing? He went, oh, I'm good. Come back from a holiday. Got a bit of weight to lose. I said, just cut down on the eating, my friend. And he went, well, it's not the eating, it's the drink. I said, well, even simpler, just cut back on the drinking. And his response was, what's the point of, what's, what's the point of living then? And I was like, are you joking? Your wife, your kids, your career, everything? Nah. And then I said, are you serious? He went, yeah. Like, what do you do for pleasure? And I said, I exercise, I spend time with my family, I spend time with my wife. And I hate, if this offends your listeners, I'm really sorry. But I said, I love to have sex with my wife. <laughs> and he went, meh, to all of that. And I was like, meh, to, all, to having sex with your wife, to spend time with your kids. He went, I'd rather drink. And then he walked out the room. What a sad, sad state of affairs. That's someone's doctor. That's someone's surgeon. That is meant to be someone giving health advice to another vulnerable, you know, ill, unhealthy person with that mindset and mental attitude. And you know what? He's not alone. I'm telling you right now, there is a big problem out there. Big problem. The ones, the doctors that know that things aren't right, but are staying quiet, this must be eating them up. And those who don't know, but are in the grime, in the system, stressed, overworked, not happy, miserable, but not putting two and two together, not understanding why they're stressed, why they're under so much pressure. Because they're being asked to do things that are not right. When you live a lie, it kills you. I might be financially broke, but look at me. I'm happy. I'm healthy. I sleep like a baby. Because I know what I'm doing is right. And I would just say to all my colleagues out there, do the right thing. Simple as that. I want to thank you, Doc Malik, very much indeed for joining us. And I know that it'll be It'll, that there'll be more times. Um, I, I promise you to those that are watching, um, we will get back uh, in touch with Dr. Malik very, very soon. Thank you for sharing your experience, your nightmare, your truth and your honesty with us. And on that note, I want to, as always, just leave it with you, Dr. Malik, the last word. I'd like to say thanks to UK Column and Debbie and all of you for inviting me on your show. I haven't been actually invited to many people's shows. I've been on TNT a few times and I trust the people behind TNT. But it's funny, I know people at, for example, GB News, I know presenters there. And I've asked to go on their show and tell them my story and I, I get no response at all. No one responds to my text messages or phone calls. And it's funny because at a time, the presenters would reach out to me and go, oh, you're doing amazing work. I want to break bread with you. I want to support you. And now when I'm asking them, there's just silence. So thank you, because it tells me that you and your organization, UK Column, are, are the real deal. You're the good guys. And I would say to everybody, if you want to fight against the system, but not risk it all, support people like UK Column and support people like me because 
you know, we're, there's no money in the freedom movement and we've put our neck on the line and lost it all to fight for not just our, our families, but all of you, all of you, because at some point, whether you like it or not, you will face the machine. And I would urge you all just help support us. And for me, it's very simple. You can subscribe on my Substack, docmalik.substack. It's only £5.50 a month and you get paywall podcast episodes, a monthly live stream, you get to read what I'm writing and you get to support me. And what is that? It's less than a coffee a month. Or you can buy me a coffee or you can um, subscribe on my Spotify, but whatever, just listen to my podcast. Two thirds of them are free. Educate yourself, empower yourself because the best way to be free is to be fit and healthy. And thank you on that note.